Hi, this is Mario Andretti, and you are listening to Beyond the Grit. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Grid, presented by the new Bose noise-canceling headphones 700. I'm Tom Clarkson, and I've got to tell you, I'm super excited about this week's guest. It's no exaggeration to say he's one of my racing heroes, and I know I won't be alone in saying that. In a lengthy career, this man won 109 major races, including 12 Formula One Grand Prix, the Indy 500, the Daytona 500, several IndyCar titles, and yes, the big one as well, the Formula One World Championship in 1978. I'm talking, of course, about American racing icon Mario Andretti. Mario's story would make a sensational Hollywood script. He was born in what was war-ravaged Italy in 1940, but spent a proportion of his childhood in a refugee camp after the area in which his family lived became part of Yugoslavia after World War II and was under hardline communist control. Seeking a better life, the Andrettis then emigrated to America to the land of opportunity. But not before Mario had got the racing bug, thanks to a trip to Monza, when he got to see his hero, Alberto Ascari, in the 1954 Italian Grand Prix. The rest, as they say, is history. Mario worked his way up the ranks to become not only one of the most versatile racing drivers the world has ever seen, but a household name synonymous with speed. Quite simply, he won in everything he ever raced, and he remains as passionate about Formula One and motor racing today as ever he was. Earlier this year, I was privileged enough to sit down with the great man in Indianapolis, where he won the world-famous 500 back in 1969. It was wonderful to discuss one of the most incredible careers our sport has ever seen, and it was a conversation I just couldn't cut short. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Mario, welcome to Beyond the Grid. It's a huge pleasure to have you on the show. Um, your story is a true American fairy tale. You went from humble beginnings to become arguably the greatest all-round race driver in the world. It's an incredible story. Well, yes. I mean, uh, I've been so fortunate, so extremely fortunate and and definitely driven by a uh, burning desire, you know, to pursue the probably... Uh, what uh, you could consider in many times the impossible dreams. Uh, as you can see that um, uh, everything that happened to me would not have happened if um, Italy did not lose the war. When Italy lost the war, they lost the territory where I was born. And again, uh, as a negative as that may be, you know, by us uh, refusing to be, you know, obviously under hardline communism in Yugoslavia and wound up in a refugee camp and then ultimately uh, coming to America. If we didn't come to America, this would have still been the impossible dream, uh, I think, for the rest of my life. So um, one thing I learned very clearly in my, my life is that, um, and I've seen so many negatives become positives, and this is one of them. I kept reminding my dad about that. Anytime that he complained about, you know, leaving his home, leaving everything, I said, Dad, look what that has done for all of us, you know. So anyway, you know, it's, uh, it's all good. Mario, just take us back to the beginning. You say, you know, you were trying to see the positives with your dad. What was the mood in the Andretti camp when you boarded that boat to America? 
Well, my dad, when the visas, he, he waited three years for visas after he applied, and he had almost forgotten about it. And uh, so it was decision time. And he said, well, we're going to America. I said, we'll probably be there for five years and then come back. And so he softened the blow type of thing. But uh, because it was definitely an unknown, yes, we had relatives here on my mother's side and all that, but uh, it was definitely an unknown. So here again, you know, uh, we go to a different country, a different life, different language, different everything. But again, you know, we were kids, so, you know, as kids, you're up to anything. You know, it's actually, uh, it's adventurous, you know. So, um, and we were all in. And um, actually, Aldo and I had uh, three years of English in school. And in Italy, we chose English as the language. And uh, we thought we were fluent, which obviously <laughs> didn't even, we didn't even, couldn't even actually, when we landed in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which was the first landing before we went to New York on a ship, we had like eight hours uh, that we could roam about. And um, we didn't even know how to ask for a postcard, you know, so... My dad thought that, well, we were fluent in English, you know, but uh, but I think some of the basic grammar helped us a great deal once we actually went to school here. And then uh, and we learned the language quite quickly. We arrived in June. I think I we vowed by Christmas. I, said, I want to know, understand everything that has been asked from me and, and so on and so forth. And, and it was quite true, actually. Well, well, how tough was it for you and Brother Aldo going into a school, not being able to speak the language, no friends... Well, we uh, we were the curious kids, you know the the you know the uh, the the twins, the uh, the foreign twins, and all that in this uh, small town of Nazareth. But we were treated well. There was no 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 issues whatsoever. But there was a, a lot of curiosity, obviously, and um, some of the girls were curious as well. So that was cute. And what kind of a kid were you, Mario? Were you very busy? Were you intellectual? Were you academic? Were you sporty? Were you scientific? Well, I don't know uh, if any of that applies, but uh, I think that uh, one thing we learned immediately once we arrived here, we arrived here in June, was in June, so uh, the racing season was in full swing, and uh, we arrived on a Thursday by Sunday night. The local races were happening at the uh, fairgrounds in Nazareth, and uh, we were by my uncle's house, and uh, we could see bright lights in the background and could not understand. It was kind of neat. And all of a sudden, a huge roar of engines because the races were at night. And Aldo and I looked at each other, and we booked. I mean, we followed the noise, and we see these brute-looking modified stock cars on a half-mile dirt track. And the race we had seen previously was actually the Mille Media, uh, from the Futa Pass at the Abatone. And the year before, we saw the Italian Grand Prix. You know, some of uh, our friends over there took us to see that. So uh, the Mille Miglia and the Italian Grand Prix were just in the clouds, we were so impossible, the impossible dream. But that's what ignited everything. And uh, But when we saw this local racing, uh, we thought it was doable. Two years later, we started building a car to race there exactly and of course we armed ourselves with uh, some uh, local uh, geeks you know that understood uh, uh, what's going on because uh, again we were just <laughs> purely driven by desire didn't have the knowledge and all that but uh, and then we started you know working on a car which uh, was ready two years later and um, you had to be 21 
in, in those days to be race professionally because of insurance, whatever it was. And uh, we were 19. And um, so I think this is a story that's been around. And uh, so we had to fudge the, the birth date on our license. Uh, and no computers in those days, you know, so it was not easy. You know, it was, uh, you couldn't, no one could check. And uh, we became, um, you know, and we said, well, we're ready to race. And we didn't look 21. So, you know, the question was, you know, to us, you know, why should we let you race? Well, we raced in Italy. You know, the Formula Junior, Count Lorani had a Formula Junior. You know, we raced in Ancona, all bull, you know, and uh, but they bought it. And uh, and actually, in those days, you know, the, the racing drivers, they didn't drive, they didn't have driving suits or anything. And uh, Aldo and I, we sent for two Sala Sport driving suits, zippers and all. And uh, we showed up with those, and there was a little bit of... You looked the part. We looked the part. <laughs> now, you say you worked on cars. Who taught you about cars? I mean, is your dad or... No, no. Trial and error. Trial and error. Believe me, it was just uh, something out of necessity. You know, I uh, was never a mechanic or anything, but, uh, you know, you had to learn for your own sake, for your own good, and uh, uh, to protect your own interest type of thing. And, uh, and you just do things and then uh, you do and you make mistakes and then you learn and you do some more that's really what it was there was no other way and it sounds the same approach to your driving as well in terms of you'd done nothing yeah i know you claimed the formula yeah. junior thing but you'd actually done no racing prior no. to no. that dirt track racing how, how quick were you how did you get to grips with all of that well uh you know we we did quite a bit of uh street racing you know, and uh, actually, we uh, we did quite well. You know, and uh, and just uh, what, what do you mean by street race? Is that sort of after I, hours? Yeah, and... off hours and just going crazy on the roads and all that sort of thing. Uh, we had a hot car, a '57 Chevy, which was really you know the, the cat's meow in those days. And my dad bought that. You know, bought that for us in two years after we arrived here. And so, but then, like I said. Uh, when you're just driven by the desire, 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 you know, uh, somehow you, you succeed in some ways. There was one car, two drivers, you know, and my twin brother Aldo, you know, we want to do everything, the same thing, you know, together. And and so there was a toss, you know, he won the toss. I was kind of happy. We won the very first race. He did, and so did I the following week. And then we did the crashing, we did the winning, the crashing, winning with all the things that, you know, go with it. But uh, it was very auspicious beginning. And uh, and we were in, this is 1959, as kids, um, uh, we put together $500 between all of us. You know, there were four other buddies. And then uh, we borrowed from the bank $500, which was signed by a gentleman by the name of Ivo Taviani who owned a block plant where we used a lot of his tools and all his welding and all the things. And uh, we paid all of our debts by July. What, in prize money? In prize money, yes. Can you remember the moment you got your first paycheck from racing? It was cash. <laughs> cash is king. Cash is king. <laughs> Aldo, the first, he won the heat race, which is qualifying heat. Usually they have three qualifying heats. They call the consolation, then the feature. So he won the heat. He started last, and it was $25. They pay, they go to the window, they pay off right away. 
and uh, the race was $125. So we, the first race we did $150. And then we used to put all this money in the drawer. And at one point we even had $350 that we were counting and still going well. And so, like I said, we, um, we were putting it away. Of course, you know, we had expenses, uh, fuel, tires and all that sort of thing, which um, was fine, but uh, well, we were flush. We were flush. What did mum and dad make of you racing? Were they uh, supportive? Was mum in particular supportive? That's another story. Because uh, actually my father was vehemently against it and, and there's no way that we could even ask if we could do it. So the only protection we had was the language barrier. And in fact... We raced the entire season without him knowing. And we were winning some races, and uh, even the boss at work, you know, would go to, hey, Gigi, man, your kids are really doing well. He, had, he didn't understand what the man was saying because, you know, my dad didn't learn the language uh, very quickly at all. And my, my mother did pretty quick, but he didn't. And, uh, and so, again, he didn't get it. He didn't know that, that we were actually racing. And, and unfortunately, he found out at the very last race of the season, which was in Hatfield, Pennsylvania, was a, 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 a invitational. You had to, to qualify for that race. You had to be in the top three in points uh, on the circuits within a 150-mile radius. And that's where we, we used to race three circuits. And uh, Aldo and I qualified. I, you know, even though we were alternating one week, he would drive, I would drive the following week. But... Uh, I won races in Nazareth, Mahoney Valley, and Flemington. And uh, so, anyway, we qualified so for that last race. Uh, I, I was driving a modified for somebody. Uh, actually, I got a ride from somebody from Allentown. And Aldo was driving our sportsman car, which was more under power. But he was fighting in a heat race, to qualifying heat race. He was fighting with the track champion, Freddie Adams, and he was qualified. You know, all he had to do is hold what he had. And, um, and he tried to pass him, and he hooked the guardrail, you know, and he went end over end, and they gave him his last rights that, that night. He was, uh, he was critical, you know. It was, uh, he had a, a basal right here, the base of his uh, skull, skull mm. was cracked and so on and so forth. Anyway, so he was in a coma for uh, about a month or more. And, and you couldn't and, hide that from Dad? The next day, I mean, uh, they actually, uh, the doctor said, uh, if, uh, parents here, we call the police. And because I called my mother that night, and I said, Mom, um, and then I had, my mom actually knew what she was caught in the middle, but we never talked about it. So I said, Mom, I said, uh, actually, I was racing, and Aldo was watching me. He was in the standing in the back of the pickup truck, and he fell. He fell off because he bumped his head and he's in the hospital, but we'll be home in the morning. And, uh, and she was very quiet. Mom the, didn't uh, believe that. Mine did didn't believe that. <laughs> Moms always have that intuition, you know. And uh, so anyway, uh, the following day, you know, he said, so my dad felt vindicated, you know, because he said, I told you, you know, you bring, they'll bring you back in a body bag. They bring back more body bags than trophies, you know. In those days, what did he know? I mean, he didn't know that Alberto Scari was killed. I mean, uh, just as we were coming over, and he was our idol, you know. And there were so many fatalities, you know. And and then and Bill Vukovic, you know, which actually he was publicized in 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 Italy because he was the first one to uh, top 
120 miles an hour average, which is uh, translated to over 200 kilometers per hour. And so when we saw the headlines, Bill Bukowitz wins Indianapolis <laughs> at 210 kilometers per hour average, I figured, oh my God, you know, that yeah. number, you know. and yeah, Magic number. Yes, magic number yeah. in, in 1954. And, uh, and so, again, so my dad, and then the man is killed, and then, you know, that. Yeah. So, again, we know the fatalities aspect of it was uh, too numerous, and, and that's all he knew. How did Aldo's accident affect you? Well, um, did you ever question whether you wanted to race anymore? No, no, no. It, uh, in fact, uh, you know, when you're driven, you're driven, you know. And um, in fact, you know, we used to, I would ask the doctor, you know, I said, uh, what should I talk to him about? What should I say to him? He'd talk to him about anything that would excite him. So I kept saying, I said, immediately, it's the last race, the car is total. And I kept saying, Aldo, don't worry. We're building a new car, which I was. We're already building a new car for next year. That's all we were talking about. And we were. You know, we never stopped. And, um, you know, uh, it's a good question. And uh, sometimes I, I could never dwell on that negative because if you dwell on that negative, you know, you just don't belong there. If you're going to do it, you have to be ready to face the risk. There's no other way. And that's it, you know. And I lost uh, along the way, not just there, you know, my brother, you know, obviously he survived and, and all of that, and he raced for another 10 years before he had another one, which ended his career. But uh, I lost some of my closest friends, you know, in a sport over the decades of the 60s, 70s, and some in the 80s. And, um, you know, we were not clear of that until I think after the century, the new century, you know, a lot of the safety aspects, you know, really, really came to play dramatically. But uh, these were formative years of trying to, you know, deal with the safety more vigorously. And uh, quite honestly, I always say that uh, if um, that was not the case, if we would not have done that, I don't think the sport would have survived, you know, as became more and more commercial, Um, you know. Companies that invest millions of dollars to be part of a race team don't want to go to funerals. You know, they want to celebrate. So, and I think um, the GPDA movement and so on and so forth, uh, you know, we were not asking for more financial side, we were asking for safety. And, you know, we're talking about Nikki Lauda, you know, whom we just lost, you know, uh, an icon in that area. And uh, he was as responsible as anyone to just get to the point. You know, and um, did the risk give you a thrill, though? Did you get off on the thrill somehow? Uh, you, you know, if there was no risk, I don't think there would be that much of an attraction, quite honestly, because uh, you're trying to defy something that can actually hurt you or even kill you, and uh, it's like a a wild animal trainer, you know. And that animal will either purr and just, or just kill you. And you just want to get your arms around that. And um, there's no, no bigger satisfaction than have the car respond to your command. And that's really the challenge that every driver faces. And that's what really keeps you going. That keeps you motivated, obviously. But um, it's always something that you know not everybody can do. 
or this, whether it's true or not, you feel that nobody can do. Not everybody can do. Now, you've said a couple of times, you've talked about how driven you were. What drove you? Was it the lure of success? Was it trophies? Was it money? Was it sort of almost running away from communism and everything that was going on in Europe or in, in certainly Eastern Europe? What was, what was the motivation? The absolute motivation was just to drive and to uh, be able to uh, emulate some of your idols. You know, uh, what really captures your imagination? Someone that's like God, and that is the one that actually really got me uh, just totally absorbed was Alberto Ascari, just the way he was depicted by the press and so forth. Uh, being so cool, so calculated and all that. And, and I just loved his demeanor, very relaxed, but like tiger, you know, just like we were talking about, just like uh, Fernando Alonso type of thing. And, uh, and so as a kid, that's what impresses you, you know. Uh, what a cool guy, you know. Uh, if I could just be like him type of thing. And it was all of that, you know. And, uh, and then when it's something that you can't have, Technically, like it looks like the impossible dream, it drives you even harder. Drives you harder. Why not? Did I ever have a plan B? No. Well, how, how close did you get to getting a proper job? <laughs> I, I dabbled at it, you know, because um, we married. I married very young. You know, I was 21. And I had responsibilities, of course. And, and quite honestly, I did some training as welding, you know, because uh, I needed to do that for our, you know, to build our cars and so forth. But um, at the same time, uh, I wasn't looking for a steady. I never really had a total steady job. Actually, it was all on the take, you know, either, you know, in, 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 in the race itself, racing. Um, when I uh, finally reached 21, which was legal to just go, I wanted to go into single-seaters, and I left the stock car to my brother. We went through three cars, by the way, just to get, not to get ahead of myself, because uh, I had to take a sabbatical for the following year, and I was winning some races with the new car that we built. And one of the events, uh, you know, usually during intermission by mid-season, intermission, there was not an intermission between the heats and the, and the feature itself. So we, we befriended a, a promoter, Jerry Frieden. I said, Aldo would like to do a few laps, you know, with our car, you know, just to get his uh, feet, you know, warm in there. And uh, so he let him do that, and he wrecked it end over end. He hooked the guardrail on the, I think, oh my God, you know, it was in the papers, I think, wheels flying. And a week later, I never missed a beat, and we built another car in a week's time, and I won the first race after that car. And actually, ran out of brakes in between. I was going to pull in a state, and then and still won. So um, things were going well. But um, as soon as I reached the legal age, I wanted to go into, you know, single-seaters, midgets. And I had uh, my, my wife's dad and his partner in the business. I had him invest in a very famous, what they call, deuce. Uh, it was number two car that uh, uh, actually we were able to buy. And then, uh, so anyway, and, and that was a three-quarter midget to race indoors, 
during the winter in the hockey rinks. But it was very popular because uh, some of the top major drivers were racing there. You know, Len Duncan, Tony Bonilla, you know, some of the icons and that. Uh, and, you know, those are the guys that were driving full-size midgets. And I needed that. I needed that, you know, to measure up, you know, against these individuals. And um, I got to tell you a story. I don't know if I'm rambling on, but it's fantastic. you, you got you to yeah. hear this story yeah. because uh, uh, the deal that I made uh, with uh, my father-in-law, uh, I said, uh, you buy the car and uh, I will give you 50% of everything, every single dollar that we earn from day one, and I'll operate the car with the other 50%. And then when you sell it, it's all yours. So it was a deal he couldn't refuse. And, and it was tough for me financially because, uh, so I put Deanne to work. She was working at a blouse factory, you know, so, you know. So, but she, and she was pregnant with the first child. And I needed her money to uh, freshen the engine every week. We had to have fresh head, you know, we had, it was an 850 Triumph engine in it. And we had to have fresh heads with the, you know, valve guides and everything. So if there was a puff of smoke on the indoor, you get black flag for the evening and you're out of the race. You know, you can't run the feature. And on the way to the city, you know, to Long Island, to actually to Teaneck, New Jersey, uh, we were going by this uh, Bob's Motorcycle Shop. And uh, it used to cost me $125, you know, to get fresh heads, you know, and then I would get to the track and I would have to put them on and... and uh, and and so the, I was paying for that with what everything that the uh, was earning. So uh, one of the races, you know, uh, we're on the way over, and she's sobbing a bit. She goes, you know, I said, Deanne, what's wrong? She said, nothing, nothing. I said, what's wrong? She said, I quit my job. I said, you did what? You got to be joking. I said, what am I going to do now with this head? You know, so I said, I'm seven and I was pregnant. And I can't go on anymore, you know. So, <laughs> so, oh, my goodness. So we, we, we used to laugh about yeah, that. You know? that's... But so, you know, going back to, you know, mm, okay, did, they have mm. a, did you have a regular job? No. <laughs> Barely. Yeah. You know, but I used to depend on, you know, on what that. I would on yeah, the track. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, when you said already, what drives you? Well, I had to earn to be able to make it through, you know, as I was yeah. a responsible daddy yeah. Yeah. Uh, early on in life. And um, it was all of it. You know, it's just uh, uh, you're not driving for the money, but that had to be part of it because, you know, you have to live. And the sport was, you know, very kind to us right from, right mm. from the outset, you know, quite honestly. Well, it seems that 65 was the pivotal year for you. Tell me if I'm wrong, but you meet Colin Chapman, you have your first indie finished third i mean would you agree that that was the year where you sort of it all started to ramp up quite quickly didn't it oh absolutely you know that um you know my objective was to reach the top level here in, in the united states which was uh, uh you know the indie cars reaching indianapolis and all of that and i think everything just was working you know very very well i mean it couldn't have been any better from the standpoint of the opportunities that I had, I often look back and say, what if, what if, you know, that wouldn't have happened. And actually, you know, my fortune was a misfortune, which uh, was happening often of another driver, which was hurt and worse. And then somebody had to take his place. And in fact, Roger Penske was supposed to be the one to test for that team, the Dean Van Nine team, and somehow he couldn't do it. So, and then some of the, 
crew chiefs actually uh, because I was fairly successful, you know, in, in sprint cars against the top guys, you know, Foyt and Branson, McCluskey, all those guys. And uh, so they asked, why don't you give Andretti, you know, a try? And, and that was it. But anyway, in, in this was 65, but it's 65, you know, but uh, again, you know, uh, it was very auspicious beginning, you know, the season started the season, you know, just up there. I had a, a second place finish uh, just before coming to, uh, uh, I led Phoenix, I was second in Trenton and coming to Indianapolis. Then, um, you know, we uh, started fourth, finished third. And then at, at, the, at the end of, um, after that is a traditional banquet, you know, and of course, uh, Jimmy won. And uh, I, throughout the month, I, I tried to uh, very hard to befriend both Jimmy and uh, and Colin Chapman. And, and uh, they were very, very nice. Um, and... Uh, just before we were saying our goodbyes, I said to Colin, I said, Colin, someday I would like to do Formula One. He said, Mario, he says, whenever you think you're ready, you call me. I will have a car for you. Can you imagine that? Mm. Oh, I was on cloud nine. Mm. I was, I said, man. And I said, okay, <laughs> you know. So, and that's when I really, really, uh, when Ford was um, actually, and and, you know, just, Helfer bent to do to to win Le Mans, so they started this Le Mans program in '66. Um, I man, I said I'll be there every test. I will do everything you need, and and I was, uh, you know, they were obviously uh, trying to get you know every driver they could to, because they were um, very ambitious, you know, with the, all the testing, and we were doing some 24-hour tests and so forth. And I really befriended uh, Bruce McLaren, and he was, you know, we became really good buddies and. I just watching, you know, his techniques, you know, especially, you know, he was very technical driver, you know, could really rotate the car in slow corners and all that. I had the, the high speed, you know, pretty well, you know, but I just needed to have just more of the technical side. And uh, and he and I used to just go out to dinner and talk about it. And You he, and Bruce? Yeah, Bruce and I, it was fantastic. Oh. And, uh, and then in 67, you know, he and I won the 12-hour uh, of Sebring, it was a hard-fought race, just the two of us, you know, it was a tough day. And and then things started rolling by 68. You know, I said to Colin, I think I'm ready to test the Formula One car. Why did it take you three years to ring Colin? You say, you know, he said, whenever you're ready, Mario, I'll have a car for you. Why did it take three years? Because a lot of people would argue you were ready sooner than that, much sooner. I didn't have any road racing experience. But, but, even when I was driving midgets... Like in 63, there was one road race at Lime Rock, Connecticut. And actually, one of the top owners, it was so important, one of the top midget owners uh, had uh, John Cooper built a rear engine midget off with an off engine just for that race to be driven by Mark Donahue, who was a road racer. And we were in the, in the standard midget, and he had a, a two-speed gearbox. We only had in and out. And uh, so, you know, on the straightaway, you know, I had to ease out out of the throttle, you know, throughout the race, but I was glued to his gearbox. And on the last lap, I passed him coming off at the last corner, and I just stayed on it, and I floated all the valves and blew the engine, but I won the race. <laughs> so there was only one road race in the midgets, and I won that. And then in 65, there was only one road race in IndyCars, 
which was uh, right here at the Indianapolis Raceway Park, and I won that. So I was hell for bent to try to do it, but I didn't think I was ready for Formula One for a while, you know. So uh, when I felt that I was, I could, you know, because I didn't want to just do it. I wanted to be fairly ready to just give it a go. And uh, because the first test was, uh, I I asked, I said, I'd like to do Monza and Watkins Glen. At the end of 68. Yeah, at the end of 68, which he granted me. And we had a test at Monza two weeks before the race, and I was quicker than Chris Heyman had been in a Ferrari. And so that was, and I felt really right in the Formula One car at that how, point. How did it feel? How can you? I felt like I was born for it, honestly. I mean, I felt, because I had driven up to that point on the road course, and I had won. I had won, you know, just uh, almost all the IndyCar road races. I won Saint-Jovit and Mont-Tremblant, kind of, you know, the both both 100 milers. I had won, you know, Riverside. I had won, you know, s- several races uh, before, you know. So, but it was, um, the Indy cars are much heavier, you know, because of the way the rules are. And so, so, and it's a, it's, it's a car that's obviously adaptable, it has to be adapted to road racing and then ovals and all that. So it's not as nimble. And when I got in a Formula One car, it was, oh my goodness, you know, this thing is, because that's all it's for, road racing. Yeah. And um, somehow that Lotus felt so right, you know. And, you know, Onza, Monza is a relatively simple uh, circuit to begin with. And uh, so I felt good. And uh, But... Um, they just stopped racing on the oval then, hadn't they? They just... Yeah, but the, the, the oval... The oval was uh, only for sports cars. Right. I mean, uh, they, have, they had stopped racing yesterday, mm. full oval. But then I even ran a thousand Ks with half on the road course, half on the oval. In fact, uh, you know, but uh, but that was later, a year later. But um, you know, the story of Monza is that um, I was up for the championship in '68 here, so I had the dirt track race right here in Indianapolis. They called the Hoosier Hundred. It was uh, the biggest dirt track race and so I had to come back here to race on Saturday and I had it I made it there was a 24-hour rule and I made a deal with Bacigalupi who was the organizer in Monza and Count Lurani and uh, you know that they would uh, waive the 24-hour rule and they said they did they would because we were in and um, I think it went breach by about two hours and Friday, you know, I only, uh, you know, in those days, uh, every practice counted for qualifying at the time. And I only could run the morning and then take a flight to the U.S. and then race Saturday here and go back. And um, to protect myself, to qualify, because in those days, uh, a lot of slipstreaming was, uh, was done by, from teammates, you know, for qualifying. I got Bobby Unser a, a, a drive with uh, the BRM with Lewis Stanley. But Mario, it's your first Grand Prix. Some people might argue that you might have focused on it and you'd have chosen a race where you weren't commuting from across to the other side of the world. I mean, it's, it's, it was an a, amazing schedule. And I suppose that's what Concord was built for, was it? But um, did tiredness affect your performance on either side of the pond? I'm, I'm a damn good traveler, quite honestly, because I can sleep anytime, you know, and... Uh, and, you know, there were a lot of this kind of me. I was, um, I think, um, in many ways, um, uh, I think I was criticized for some of that, 
you know, I don't think I gave up a damn thing, you know. I mean, of course, I I would not prescribe that, you know, go across the ocean the same weekend and all that. But unfortunately, I was going for the championship here, so I could not, you know, really let go. And, and, and that was probably worth a few quid. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Actually, yeah. the, this this was the best pain uh, of the uh, dirt races, actually. And I finished second to Foyt, by the way, just for the record. You know, so I had a good day. And so, and when we went back, when we went back in the morning, there was a protest. My car was on the grid. I was seventh on the grid. I was much, much quicker, you know, at the beginning in the morning, which is, you know, to be expected. But uh, I was still seventh on the grid. And um, the car was on the grid and it almost made it look like we never made it. And there was a protest. And I still, and I think it was by Ferrari. You still don't know sure. for sure. I still don't know for sure. <laughs> But all I know, there was all the Italians talking and calling, and they would not allow me there because I speak the language. I said, I'll submit to whatever you want. I said, if you want to do a, a, a physical or whatever, you know, I said, if that's the question, you know, if they're not physically fit, and they just would never even allow me there into the meeting, and they did not allow us to start. And so my... Um, my actual debut was at the USGP at Watkins Glen, which I had never read, I never seen before, by the way. Now that's an incredible story in itself. But just one final question about Monza was, it was a baptism of fire into the, the political world of Formula One and who yeah. holds the power and the power of Ferrari. Yeah. Um, how much of an eye-opener was that, the fact that you were, you'd flown across the world and still yeah. not allowed to race? Well, obviously, it was very disappointing, and uh, and it is what it is. But sometimes that's a reality of competition. Sometimes uh, you know you just have to deal with it, um, and it's end of story. You move on. That's all there's to it. Nothing you can do. Um, you know, so uh, this too shall pass, type of thing. You know, so uh, yeah, it's disappointing for sure. You know, uh, we were all in for it, and uh, but. Uh, just time that uh, they did not allow us to start Le Mans. I was in a car just five minutes before the start. They pulled me out of the car because they changed it, said that they changed the rear cooler, oil coolers, you know, from qualifying, you know, stuff like that. So I've been through the, some of <laughs> The crazy world of motor racing. Crazy. But you mentioned Watkins Glen. So, so the debut eventually comes, as you say, two weeks exactly. later to, at a track you'd never seen. Never tested either. And you put the car on pole. Amazing story. But that tells you... What does that tell It tells how, me that Mario Andretti was quite a handy racing driver. Well, it tells you that how nicely I felt, you know, in this Formula One car. And quite honestly, you know, um, I think some of the tricks that I learned even testing tires, that's thanks to Firestone. In those days, I used to do a lot of testing. And we were still uh, running... Um, uh, groove tires and uh, everybody was going in with groove tires and putting new tires on and I was wearing mine down to be, get closer to a slick and that was working for me and um, because I put it on Paul right at the end and um, you know just to be quicker than Jackie Stewart was pretty damn good you know at the yeah. time so and quicker than my two teammates you know Graham Hill included you know so um, the bottom line is uh, it's all about learning a little bit you know of the dynamics of what a racing car really wants 
and I did so much testing, you know, for Firestone that uh, helped me uh, greatly, you know, to just develop some knowledge, you know, of uh, how to get the best out of the tires and so forth. How did F1's big guns react to you? So, first race you try and do, they stopped you driving altogether. Then, or not not the drivers, but the... You yeah, know, you, then you go to the Glen and you put it on pole. What were the Jackie Stewart's of this world thinking, do you think, at that time? You know, I found camaraderie no matter where because, um, you know, I had friendships uh, uh, with Jackie. He had uh, been at Indy before and we had talked about a lot of things, uh, you know, over time. And, and um, uh, to me, uh, I felt that it, I was accepted quite well. I, I think so. And um, even when I went to stock cars, everybody said, oh, man, you're there. I felt, you know, you could feel like I was a real foreigner, you know, especially in those days. And then, But I never felt out of place. You know, I figure it's a racing world. We're all a big family. I have no complaints, you know, in that respect. I really don't. I didn't have to, you know, I'll drive. I said, hopefully I'll earn some respect from them and, and give it back and, and go on, you know. Let's talk Ferrari. When did Enzo first approach you? Enzo approached me actually uh, to give me a full drive. It was after I won um, not just South Africa, but after I won um, the Questro Grand Prix, which uh, in, in California was a non-championship race where, uh, you know, actually... Um, as fate would have it in South Africa, Jackie Stewart finished second as well, you know, to me. And then they finished second, both 100 miles, you know, at, um, at the Questor. And uh, he offered me, uh, you know, a full drive. And I couldn't take it because of my contract to race here because Firestone was in a big war uh, with Goodyear and the tire war. And I was, you know, very much involved. And, and it was... You know, the financial side just did not compare to what Formula One could provide. So, and I was always thinking, you know, the family as well. You know, I had to provide, you know, the best possible because I've seen, I just lost, uh, you know, that uh, one of my best friends, Billy Foster, and I saw just, I left the family, you know, unfortunately young, you know, and and I figured I got to provide, I got to provide security for the family in case something happens to me you know that was deep down that's part of that's also what you feel or justifies the risk you know you, you put stuff in your head you know that uh, you want to work you know and give it you know an excuse you know why am i taking all this risk i have beautiful children and everything else well you know at the same time you know i'm satisfying myself but i got to make sure that i take care of them as well so that's why i always went for the big buck you know <laughs> what about mr ferrari though was he um was he an intimidating man i can tell you this um yes he could be i first met him in uh, 1969 when i drove a uh, thousand k's with chris amon uh in monza and um and chris was very quick and uh so obviously i'm trying to be quicker and somehow I just, I got into the wall. Just not not big, but the body was all skewed, you know. And when I came in and I figured, oh, my God, oh, my God, he's there, you know. And he's always there. Enzo going, was there. In Enzo the, in was there. Yeah, yeah. And he was there. And as I pulled in, I said, he's going to fire me. He's going to fire me, you know. I pulled in 
and he had a smile on his face, honest to God. And this is what I learned. This man, he would never fault somebody that actually is trying. That's why he, he was in love with Jill Villeneuve. I mean, Jill Villeneuve was coming back with a steering wheel in his hands, you know, more than once. And he loved him because his heart, he was out there. And he was a true racer. And, and I learned, I saw that, oh, my God, you know, he's not really all that upset. And then, you know, we talked, and he saw that we have many noses and so forth, you know. I said, well, that's what you want. That's who you want on your side, you know. Uh, he was a racer through and through. That's all he lived, and he breathed just that. And uh, if he knew that you gave your all, he would never fault you. And that's one thing that I saw. I remember uh, in uh, 82 when uh, I was asked to... Uh, uh, to replace, uh, oh. well, to, you know, poor Didier Pironi, you know, and, and, uh, we Monza. Did, yeah, we did a test in Fiorano and I had never, you know, I was out of Formula One that whole season already, but, but I had not driven a, a turbo Formula One car. So I had to get, you know, used to things. And, and, and at the end of the day, when I broke the track record, you know, I see him smile. That was God given, you know, I says, you know, if I'm pleasing this man, you know, then uh, it's like heaven. You know what I mean? It was just that sort of thing. Um, and so I have a, had a direct, clear, direct relationship with him. I always dealt with him directly on every deal that I've done, sports cars and, and Formula One. You know, I never had to deal with Dr. Gozzi, Franklin. Because you can speak but, Italian. Yes. I suppose yeah, that helps. Yeah. yeah, that helped. But I could sp- usually he liked to have, he liked to deflect, you know, he didn't want to be approached directly. It was like, that's what I always understood, you know, but um, he and I just dealt directly, which is something that I always value, you know, a great deal. Yeah. I, um, I did one of these podcasts a few months ago with Luca di Bonzemolo. Yeah. And he said uh, that he was a demanding man, but also a kind man and, uh, and, actually quite a ladies' man as well. L- Lucas said that he used to come back from a Grand Prix and the first question wasn't how was the car, it was, so how are the ladies in, in Holland or the USA or wherever the race had been? <laughs> well, that's what, you know, it was funny you, yeah. you mentioned that because uh, some of the American uh, dealers, Ferrari dealers, yeah. they used to bring those, uh, you know, uh, blondes from California and, you know, and waiting in the waiting room and the... And he, he would say, uh, you know, you make him wait hours, you know. And he said, which one has the blonde? <laughs> Bring him in. <laughs> Did he pay generously? I remember. Yes. Let's talk more about that return in 82. As you say, you were replacing Didier Peroni, who'd had a terrible accident at Hockenheim that year. But was it a no-brainer for you when you got the phone call? Because you were, as you say, you hadn't driven a turbo car. You were, what, 42 years old at the yeah. time. Did you question it at all or was it, I'm in? No, I didn't question it. I mean, uh, the thing is, you know, what's interesting is the fact that I was driving for Pat Patrick here and uh, every one of my contracts says, you know, they, they you do a contract and you try to obviously get, you know, the maximum that you can, you know, on a contract, on a, on, on a financial side. And, and so they own you, you know, like uh, I always did my own contracts, by the way. I had a manager, business manager, you know, for many years. In fact, first one that I had, uh, I managed Jim Clark as well, uh, Chuck Barnes. And, um, but anyway, uh, but I always did my racing contracts myself. And uh, the bottom line is 
everyone said prohibited vehemently from doing anything else. And so uh, Pat Patrick says, uh, I said, I'm going to do Monza. He said, you can't do that. I said, well, but I will. He says, well, the contract, you know. I said, I'm doing it. Same thing with Colin. You know, when I was driving with Colin, I was driving for Roger Penske here in the States. And uh, so I remember, I don't know if we were Silverstone, you know, we were testing. In between, and there was a free weekend. And they say, you're staying over? I said, no, I have to go back to America. They said, why? He said, I'm, I'm racing. They said, you can't do that. I says, are you talking about 78? Yeah. So you're in your championship. <laughs> There's so many good stories. Your championship season with Lotus, you still did the Indy 500. I did. I did. Uh, I did. Yeah. Every w- the weekend that we had off, I drove for Roger Penske. And I, I won a couple of races there with it. And I also won the, the IROC championship that year. You know, Does, the, did the fatigue not set in at any point? No. No. I mean... No, you prepare yourself. You live that, you know. And and uh, I'm not. You're not stupid about it, you know. You just. Uh, I was fine. I can tell you a little further about you know the test that, uh, and, and when I went to Fiorano that morning, you know, when I tested at Fiorano in in '82, in '82, just to not to get ahead of myself, um, my wife and I, you know, we we went over and uh, I arrived on a Saturday. I arrived in Malpensa in Milan and drove, you know, and we had lunch, you know, at the Cavallino. And then I said, it was time in the afternoon. I said, I'm going to get fitted up in the car. And then I was slated to test the whole day Sunday. That was the, the plan. And um, so I, you know, I get all fitted up in the car and I said, uh, uh, I'd like to do a few laps in it, you know. And I said, okay. I did 84 laps that day. And set a new track record that you know before we finished. This is on the Saturday. On the Saturday, and Having then I only gave, landed that morning. Yeah, landed that morning, and I gave the mechanics a day off. I said Sunday, take, and I, I called the the, the uh, you know the the, the Filippi was a the the Filippi who owned the um, they owned um, who was that Filippi they owned the Motoguzzi, uh, and. Uh, and I asked for a, a Le Mans 1200. And Sunday, Deanna and I just went up on the Abitona. He's just uh, biking, you know, with a motorcycle. And they, they had it uh, announced that I was going to be testing all day in Monza. So there's some people there with, you know, getting all ready to umbrellas yeah, and cool. start watch the race. And I was going by, bye bye. Nobody <laughs> there. But well, about that race, I mean, Mario, it was, the, it was, you know, it was such a magical weekend, wasn't it? You put the car on pole position at your beloved Monza, the place where you'd seen Ascari back in the yeah. 50s. Just qualifying in particular, the race wasn't quite so good, but but qualifying, just talk us through that day and the emotions of doing it at Monza. Well, you know, all of it. I mean, uh, it plays it just that, um, you know, the car was right, no question. And, uh, and I think um, when it's in a sweet spot, I can really find some little bits, you know, that can make a difference. And if, uh, and I, I used to, there's something that even Colin used to question me, you know, a lot of time. I used to play with uh, what they call, you know, the Ackerman, which is, means, you know, I used to change, I used to change like the difference in, um, in the, 
tie rods of the steering to just give one wheel, depending on which corners that I really wanted to have, you know, some specific, uh, like turning in and, uh, small minute changes used to make a difference. And, um, well, particularly through the chicanes at Monza. Like, you know, Lesmo, for instance. Yeah. Oh, in the Lesmo. Okay. I needed to do Lesmo, you know, really. And that's, that's where I gained so much time. And, uh, and so I always picked a corner that I knew that would really, uh, pay me back. And Colin said, why do you do that adjustment? I said, I don't even know why. I said, I just do it because I know it works. And so that, that even the Ferrari mechanics, you know, they were questioning me, you know, so what, did the toes reset the toes? Because I would... Well, I would and they move. hadn't done that on that car all season. You were the first person first to... First one they were doing. That was, yeah. that was my tweak. Yeah. And uh, the toes is what you do. The toes remain the same, but I would shorten one, one side and lengthen the other side so the toe remains the same. They couldn't understand that. And uh, so things like that were small things that somehow just Where did came you in. learn that? Was it on the dirt tracks of America or was just, it just... Just, you know, testing and all just, that. Yeah. I used to do all yeah, some yeah. of those small adjustments yeah. because uh, you had the luxury, you know, doing so much driving and sometimes, you know, you figure, what if, what if, you know? And so you try those things and then you keep it to yourself, you know? And um, I didn't share that sort of thing because it was even hard to explain. You know, so some of these things really work for me, you know. And so, Mario, the Tafosi went nuts, didn't they? Yeah, it was actually quite, you know, uh, interesting because, you know, for all the things you said, uh, you know, as far as, uh, um, you know, Italy and, and uh, Monza and Ferrari, I mean, uh, it doesn't get any better than that. And uh, things were, well, you know, um, I just... Um, uh, I should have won that race. We lost a turbo with a couple laps to go on the left side. And um, and so, you know, I finished third, but I should have won that race. Was there ever an option to do a full season with them in 83? No. 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 So but, did you kind of know that it was a bit of a swung song? And, and yeah, yeah, I, I sort of knew that. And, and the thing that I loved best was the fact that uh, also... As much as Lotus meant to me, it was also uh, good to say, okay, my last Formula One race is with Ferrari. There was something to that as well, you know. So I said, you know, how fortunate am I? What, what about sort of how how Italian are you these days or were you back then? Because, of course, dual citizenship, American and Italian. When you're racing at Monza, you're very much Italian. I mean, just... How do you feel? I, you know, I am so always will ever be uh, thankful and, uh, you know, for what has happened to me. America has given me, the home has given me everything. But uh, I always said, even to the Italians, is don't forget that passport does not change your blood. So there's a lot of pride of, of me. I, I saw what my dad, you know, how how much he, he felt, you know, about uh, being a patriot. And he gave up everything. He didn't have to. I mean, he didn't, even though the state, you know, once hardline communism, the state owns everything. But he owned eight, 800 hectares of land. He had seven tenants, you know, different parcels. And he was well off in that area and uh, gave it all up, you know, to maintain the Italian citizenship. You know, so that taught me something, you know, the, the, how important it is 
to have that as a principle. And, and again, that never leaves you, you know. But uh, never lose the fact that, um, you know, what gave me the ultimate life, you know, was America. You know, so I'm grateful to both. And uh, in 1977, you know, a lot of people never paid attention. I started, you know, I only realized it only uh, about two years ago. In 1977, I won the USGP and also I won Monza. So I won my home Grand Prix and I won my native Grand Prix that year. Now, how sweet is that? You know, how important <laughs> it is for a driver in Formula One to win their home Grand Prix, but also the native. I said, man, you know, Colin, thank you very much. You know, you gave me both, you know, and um, when I count my blessings, that's what I think about. Let's talk more about Colin Chapman. Why did it work so well between the two of you? I love the man, you know, because of his his passion too. And um, and he had to be in the swing, you know, where he, where he was really interested. And somehow, I think we fed off one another as far as... Um, you know, just energy, you know, to just get it done. He, he just loved winning, and that's who you want to be with. You know, you know that, uh, I mean, historically, how much he, he'd sacrifice anything to give the driver, you know, every advantage possible, weight, safety, anything, just so, you know, you could win. And so I was fortunate to be, you know, you look at his, uh, uh, his career was peaks and valleys, and when you're with him, you know, during the peaks, you're going to be world champion. And the timing just worked out fantastic. Here's a negative. I'm with, the, you know, the American team, you know, with the Wells Pernelli oh, Jones. Yeah, yeah. They decide to pull the rug from under us uh, right at the beginning of the 76 season. And they said, well, they said, you know, without even discussing it with me. And I was the one that put the whole deal together with Firestone. You know, that's, that's who was really financing it. And so uh, at Long Beach, I'm on the grid and uh, Chris Economy comes in, Mario says, uh, what do you, how do you feel about uh, Val just told me that uh, this is the last Formula One race for you? I said, What? Yeah, on, you're in the car. <laughs> on, yeah, on the grid about a couple of minutes before the go. And I, holy man, I was. Uh, and then. Uh, were you, how surprised were you? I mean, when you had time so, to reflect on it later. Oh my goodness. I mean, uh, I was so upset. I was so upset. And the next morning, uh, you got to hear that story because uh, that's how Colin and I got together. I think Colin had the worst race of his career. This is the time when Colin was, um, uh, he's very ambitious, and he had the boat company started, car company. He had so many things going, and the racing was just, you know, not in his mind, you know. That was, uh, he was kind of going through a transition. And um, the next morning, we're both staying at the Queensway Hilton, they call it, right next to the Queen Mary, actually. And I just went to have breakfast. I was by myself. And um, how and were the, you feeling that morning? Because you you'd just uh, driven your last. It was race a low, one of the lowest oh, lows. And uh, I was—I mean, I had my chin in my socks for sure. And um, so I'm looking, and there's Colin having breakfast by himself. So I joined, and we started commiserating with one another. And I said, Colin, I said, I'm out of a drive, you know. He says, man, he says, I wish I had a decent car to give you. 
I said, are you, can you give me a car? He says, are you sure? I says, yes. I said, I want to be in Formula One. I committed to be in Formula One for whatever time now to get the job done. I said, and, um, and I'm not ready. I said, uh, I told him about the surprise that was handed to me. And, and he said, you got it. I said, one thing we have to do. I want to be number one on the team because I knew that there were no two best of anything. I knew that. I call, even when I was driving in this number third car, I had all junk engines and everything else, spare parts, because Morris Philippe used to tell me, that's why my first race, the clutch just you know started slipping immediately and stuff like that. So I said, Colin, number one, he says, you're in. I said, uh, he said, he said, I'm embarrassed with the car that I have. I said, we'll make it better. We'll just make it better. And we worked on it. In fact, you know, we were getting better. We got a couple of podiums. And then, you know, we won the very last race, as you Lapped saw. Lapped the field at Fuji. Yeah. Well, not only that, but we, we were quickest on the dry. So it was not just the wet. We were, we were on pole in the dry. So, you know, we were getting there, you know. But he says, he says, I don't know what we have in store. He says, but next year's car is going to make this one look like a London bus. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Colin said that. <laughs> Typical. You know, so uh, we were So that's on. how it all started, over, over breakfast yes. in Long Beach. Long Beach. And do you feel that because you went through, you, you showed so much trust in him, that is oh, that yeah. kind of, so the relationship got off to a good start, the trust was there and he built, from, built upwards from there. Absolutely. We were in it, you know, together. And, uh, and this is one thing that... Um, it was, you know, I, I, we discussed about, I said, uh, Colin, you have to come back racing a hundred percent. I said, uh, I said, you have to delegate. I said, responsibilities for your boat company, the car company. I said, we got to race. And, and he did. And he did. And so, uh, that was a big thing. So, I mean, let's talk 77. First and only American to win the US Grand Prix. Big moment. We've already kind of discussed that, but then... What was it like to drive a skirts car for the first time? Well, you know, that... Skirts being ground effect for people. Well, you know, we... (laughs) It's a long story about how we arrived. The car was not really designed, you know, to be really ground effects at the beginning. When we were discussing about the next... We were in Hethel, and we were talking about, um, you know, what everybody is out there you know giving input giving ideas what we should be doing for next year and uh, they look at, at the driver and i said uh, you know from a driver's standpoint uh what do i want i want downforce i said without drag penalty and uh, the one thing i gave him an example that uh, when i drove the march back in uh, 1970 i think it was uh it's, yeah and and we were testing in south africa the march had like a, a wing-shaped pods on the side, which were uh, just strictly aerodynamic. And so I was there driving for Granatelli. It was, you know, just a small team. And uh, so we were testing different things. But uh, because of um, uh, normally aspirated engine high altitude, you know, the, the power was down. So I was trying to strip as much drag out of the car as I thought that I could without really having had any 
data, you know, wind tunnel or anything else. And um, and I knew that um, uh, Robin Hurd was pretty sharp, you know, aerodynamicist. And uh, so anyway, I said, let's take those things off the side. So we unbolted them off. And I went out there and all of a sudden I'm really flying the front end. So I had to use a lot more front wing, you know, which all of a sudden, I figured, you know, those are providing downforce. And that's when I said to Colin, I said, I told him about that. And they said, and that's when he built the whole body. It was all a wing shape. And, and, and then he I said, you know, you build a wing shape and then you put a fence so you can direct the air. So we went to, we were testing in Hockenheim. And at the end of uh, the main straighter where there was a, I think, I don't know, I don't know if they call it Bosch curve, but there was a, no, the Bosch curve, I don't know, I think it's in Austria. Yeah, Bosch curve is uh, Austria. Yeah, but uh, there was the right-hander that connected the two straightaway, you know, it was a long radius right-hander. And going through like the middle of the right-hander, the car felt like it was really sucking down, which I was closing the gap. We didn't have skirts at the time. And so I'm saying, Colin, I'm telling you, right in the middle, I'm picking up a lot of downforce. And so he sent uh, Bob Dance to, to, to town to buy some plastic strips. So we put plastic strips on there, and I went out there, set a track record immediately. And I said, we have something. I said, but those strips, they're going to last two laps, one lap, two laps, or whatever. And so, and that's when... Uh, we ran several races with just a, a brush. Do you ever see that? Oh, I've seen pictures of it. The yeah. brushes, yeah. Yeah. And then, and they could see, and he had, um, what was it, Phillips, uh, what was the photographer, um, a famous photographer, he had him uh, photographing the car in different areas to see just uh, how the, you know, where the airflow was and all that. And then Colin realized that um, we need to close that gap. And that's when he came up with the moving skirts. And that's how this thing was like a, a sequence, you know, just learning things. And then, then you figure, well, now we need to really clean up the exit of the diffusers because of the airflow. The more airflow you get, the more downforce. And uh, so, like I said, it was a process, but... Uh, uh, we were it's learning funny how as it, we went. But Mary, it, it grew organically, didn't it? It started in a hardware store in Hockenheim when yeah. you went and bought some plastic curtain rails yeah. or whatever it was and, yeah. and evolved from there. Evolved from there. Yeah. But then, 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 and then he started, then he went wind tunnel more and then he realized that uh, he needed a moving road because we're directing the air underneath the car. And then we started realizing how much of, uh, of disruption that the wheel's turning. So he's the first one that came up with a moving road tunnel. And uh, so there were so many things happening there. Just uh, How exciting. Yeah. Was, did you find that exciting? And, and Oh, I love that. I yeah. love the development like yeah. that. I mean, 
Uh, as a driver, I mean, what do you want to do? Drive fast, faster and faster through the corners. You want, you know, to be able to do that. And uh, it got to the point that, you know, back in like in, uh, I'd say, 80, 81, I mean, there was so much downforce. The cars were like, uh, I mean, glued. And then they had to restrict it, you know, because uh, it was too much. I mean, they, like the Ferrari that I drove, the front wings were actually lifting the car, not putting it down to balance it. You know that that's that that was the the Formula One cars of those years. There was so much front, you know, COP yeah. toward the front that they had to use the front <laughs> wings to raise the front, not to, oh, to balance goodness. it. Nineteen seventy-eight. Did you know the first time you drove the seventy-nine that that was the car? I just loved how clean it was. And then uh, the same thing that uh, what we're talking about, you know, the uh, 77, Lotus 77 had, uh, uh, I mean, Lotus uh, 78, I should say, uh, had um, uh, inboard rear brakes. And there was, they were very much in the way of the airflow from the diffusers. And the 79 was still inboard brakes, but he really sucked them in. He made uh, in the, to the gearbox, which actually turned out to be a big uh, disadvantage to us later on, because uh, he had Hewlin um, mold as part of the gearbox half of the, uh, the the brake calipers. So half of the brake calipers was um, uh, magnesium, and uh, you know instead of aluminum, and magnesium has a tendency to obviously flex. And so later on, that's another story. But the bottom line, though, however, as far as the flow, um, I remember we were in Belgium, and I know the year before, I, you know, I, I had a really good time, you know, I had a good time qualifying and so forth, and then it crashed, and, you know, at the start of the race. But I know the 70, Lotus 78 was actually still a good car. But uh, I know that Ronnie had tested the 79 at Understorp, your teammate, Ronnie Peterson. Yes. And I asked him, I said, how did car feel? He says, like this, okay, that's all I need to know. So, yeah. so I told Colin, I said, Colin, I'd like to race that test car. He said, no, 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 no. He says, no, Randy, no, this and that. I said, um, Colin, I'm going to ask the mechanics if they can get a race ready. Well, you do that. So I did it. The boy says, you want to race it? It will be race ready. And uh, we raced it and we won. But that's when we learned, you know, I had pretty good lead, uh, luckily, because I had to keep pumping the brakes. And this is something we had the whole season. And every time we would, well, we would tell Colin, and because we were bowling the fluid, especially on full load at the beginning. And, uh, and then you come in after the race, car cools down a little bit, you pump the brakes, you got brakes. What the hell are you guys are talking about? So the pedal just gets longer and longer the yeah. more you run the car. Yes. Yeah. God, I thought the car was perfect. <laughs> no, yeah. there was, we yeah. had some issues. Yeah. Some issues. Do you think the sort of skirts era was particularly good for you in the way you like to drive a car? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Obviously. Um, I felt the car was uh, really responding, you know, to the way I like, and uh, I had my arms around it. I had a really good feel for things. The unfortunate thing is that uh, as we developed, we got more and more downforce, 
the car just like, uh, why did I abandon Lotus 80, the 80? I love the car, but only for a few laps. The car was just, uh, uh, had so much more downforce. But um, the skin of the car, the tub, was basically the same as it was a Lotus 79. It was a, To me, I looked at it, it was like a, a beautiful lady, well-dressed, but with cancer, body with cancer, because uh, I know we were, we were testing um, uh, Paul Ricard, I think, and we were quick. I would be quick for like a few laps, and then the car just started acting weird. And then because I needed to go stiffer and stiffer in springs, then the spring purchase, you know, we were starting to, uh, you know, to pop rivets, you know, and so on and so forth. And he was strengthened that, and then we were getting some uh, actual, um, where the, the driver compartment is, you know, it was like a horseshoe like this. We needed to have, wrap it around, you know, to have given more torsional stiffness. And um, and he wouldn't have it. He wouldn't have of it because of weight and I'm so on and so forth. going to save that extra weight, yeah. 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 And, um, and one thing that Colin never accepted, it was uh, any uh, suggestion on the technical side from a driver, you know, to do something to the car. He, he used to go ballistic about that. Sometimes I would suggest, why don't we do this and that? And he said, you just, you drive, but, you know, I mean, so how would a debrief go after a session? If you said, oh, no, no, he was fine about about setup. setup. Okay, so setup it's, was it's yeah. a design thing, right? Design thing. He yeah. just didn't want to, and um, that's that's where we. That's the only time where he and I disagreed, you know, because uh, I was watching, you know, the following year, like the Williams, they built the right car. A lot of things, you know, they they took what Colin had and they perfected it, and Colin was already thinking about his next design. He was already bored with that. And, but the next design, actually, it would turn out to be illegal, which we all knew. You know, but the beauty about Colin is he always is looking, he's looking at the rules. And he's like a uh, crackerjack lawyer. You know, you read the law. I mean, you've got to press that envelope. You know, and that's what makes you a winner in court. And that's, he, he is an engineer. That's, he was reading the rules and getting everything out of the rules, you know, right to the limit, leave nothing on the table. This time he stepped a little bit further because uh, he was working with, uh, talking with unsprung weight, trying to actually try to put down force on the unsprung weight directly, which in a clever way, but, you know, it was illegal, you know, and it never turned out to be. Uh, but it, like I said, um, the thing about Colin, as you can see, he was such a maverick, always thinking ahead always thinking ahead. He was genius. And geniuses get bored very easily, you know, with the status quo. And that's, that's the way I read Colin, you know. He, um, I mean, he wanted to win, but you know what? Okay, we got this now. We got to the next step. Now we really get something, you know. What did your success in 78 mean to Colin, do you think? That what I loved about Colin, again, you know, he would express his emotions. I mean, just the, the classic throwing, throwing his the cap as you cross the line, of course. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, things like that. Colin loved to win it. And as a driver, I love to see that. You know, he crossed the line. I said, man, he was truly, truly happy. A winner, period. You know, and, uh, and as a driver, there's so much encouragement, you know, when you see that. You know, you do it for yourself, but, you know, when, even when it 
mechanics, when they express themselves with the poor mechanics, they work so hard. And that's, you know, that's the thing, you know, that's what, the, that's what you strive for and to win. And, um, and when they express themselves, you know, that's a, it's the greatest thing for a driver. For me, uh, it was, a sim, you know, I make myself happy, but I make them happy as well. What was it like to ride the crest of that wave in 78? Oh, You've got a brilliant car. The vibe in the team is great between yeah. you and Ronnie and oh, Colin. Yeah. Couldn't be any better, you know. It just uh, it was. Uh, was it your most enjoyable? I mean, obviously the results of that. No, it was. was it the yeah, best it was incredibly period? enjoyable. Yeah, incredibly. Uh, it's what you dream about. It's a, you know uh, you pinch yourself. You know, am I really living this? You know, so yeah, all of that. And uh, you know, I just look back with such fondness. You know, everything that was going on, all the good, everything that Colin. What he gave me, you know, was something that um, was beyond precious, you know, and um, I never took it for granted. Monza, that's where you win the title. How tough was it to lose your teammate that weekend? Uh, it's hard to explain those things, you know. Um, it was such a waste, a waste because he should not have died. He should not have died of those injuries. I did go over there when when the accident happened. I ran over there, and Colin said, "Don't go, don't go." But and I think you know he would have been. His legs were really in bad condition, but I kept saying, "I said, okay, he's going to be limping for a while, but he's going to live." Was he conscious at that point? I, no, I think he was uh, somewhat delirious. You know, he was in shock for sure um, because you know I tried to talk to him and so forth. He was in shock. I mean, it's understandable. But he was not that his head it was compromised or anything. I don't think they had any of those injuries. There was some fire. There was, you know, he had some burns. But uh, uh, basically, by any standard, you know, he should have never died. Not from an embolism. Because when you have that type of injuries, immediately, I mean, you just dissolve. You get blood thinners and so on and so forth. You never got any of that. And... Um, and that's, I will fault that forever. And that's when we hear again, you know, we're pushing, you know, for our own doctors. We want to have to, we have to have our own doctors to direct the locals to do what we need to do under these circumstances. And, um, and we achieved that. How difficult was it to get back in the car having seen Ronnie? Well, you know, it's, that was, you know, I hate to say it, you know, because uh, it sounds so callous, you know, but that was never the issue for me. That was my job. And um, it was never, why do I do this or should I? Because I had seen too much of it before. But you never get used to it, believe me. It's not that you get used to it, but things are never the same. You know, you lose a friend, you lose a... And, it was not the first friend that I had lost. And um, I couldn't celebrate for sure. I said this many times, this had to be, should have been the happiest day of my career for sure. Uh, and I couldn't celebrate. And I don't think we ever really did to the in earnest. The celebration is the rest of your lifetime. You know, you, you know it's there with you, but uh, uh, Diane and I, uh, we just, uh, how, you know, because we, we were close to the family, 
uh, with Barbara and the kids, you know, we used to spend time, our kids, you know, so there was, it was more than just, uh, we were teammates. Uh, used to come, when he came to America, like a race at the Glen, we come to the lake ourselves, we go crazy doing stuff, you know, as usual. And, um, and we used to recreate, you know, in so many ways and uh, be competitive, raise hell and have fun, um, you know. So it was, you know, we lost a true friend there, you know. And um, and again, you know, it was just another, another one of those sad situations. How quick was Ronnie? It was quick. Ronnie was quick. He was quick and... Uh, and I think what I had over him, I think I had uh, I, I had the technical. I I understood the technical side a little better, and uh, that's what I felt that I had over him. You Do you know, think he learned off you? I don't know. I don't know how to say that. But uh, um, a lot of time, I think he got my setups and so forth, and a lot of things because uh, I I had pretty good understanding, you know, of the cars. Cars were very sincere, were very good, responded well. I mean, he had his own way of doing things too, but um, used to wind up with a lot of the time with my setups and so forth because then, and he could drive over things, you know, just um, he had fantastic car control and all oh, that sort of thing. All these pictures I see of him, woodcut at Silverstone yeah. sideways, yeah. <laughs> flat out. Yeah, fun driver, you yeah. know, we just... Um, I love the man. I really did. Mario, who was the best F1 driver you raced against, do you think? It's hard to say. I think um, very calculated was Nicky, you know, in, in his own way. I think James really had a lot of uh, talent, raw talent himself. You know, I raced enough with Jackie Stewart. There were moments, you know, where they, over the decades, there was always somebody, you know, that was really up here. And, um, and that's what keeps you motivated. That's what, those are the ones that make you a better driver because you know that you got work to do. And um, there's always someone that's better than you. Schechter? Schechter, Schechter was, uh, is another one, you know, a pure car control with him, hot and cold in some ways. You know, um, he's not the one that you had to deal with racing or race out, but good, you know. Uh, but on a, any given day, you know, hard to beat. Mansell. Very good. Because, of course, you raced him in Formula One, but you also raced him, you were his teammate in IndyCar, Nigel. Nigel. Nigel had pure talent, yeah, for sure. Now, look, Mario, yours was an amazing career. When were you at your peak? It's hard to say, really. Uh, I think probably in my 30s, for sure. You know, in those days, uh, as you could see, uh, you were not legal, really, to, to, to race until today. Look at Verstappen, you know. He's already a veteran at, what, 22? I think he's still he? 21, actually. Yeah, still yeah, 21, yeah. right? He's already a veteran. And in those days, you could not even... You, couldn't, you could only get your license, you were saying. Yeah, but yeah, even yeah. Formula One, have you, have you, had you ever seen in those years... You know, anyone, uh, you know, in early 20s? No. And uh, so I felt I was still wet behind my ears when I was in mid-20s. You know, like uh, when I won the championship here in IndyCars, I was 25, and I was the youngest man, to, the youngest champion to, uh, to do it at that point. 
You know, nowadays, you know, it's a little different, you know, but uh, I felt that, um, I truly felt that in my uh, mid-30s, I was probably uh, my peak. Okay, so we're sort of mid-70s there. Does age make you slower? Has to. I mean, you don't like to admit it, you know, and uh, I wish there was a signal there somewhere to tell you. Uh, sometimes uh, you get burned out, whatever works. Sometimes uh, uh, there's something that obviously uh, has to decrease. Uh, what kept me motivated also was my son, Michael, you know, and being my teammate. Uh, Michael was brutally quick and uh, he really was. And I tell you, he got screwed over, in, you know, with, uh, with McLaren, you know, but uh, if he would have listened to me and, 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 uh, and, and just, toughed it out, he would have been world champion. He was quicker than Mika why Hakkinen. Why didn't it work out for him at McLaren in 1993? He had a pretty nifty teammate. Didn't help, probably. No, no, it helped. There was no big deal, actually. Senna. When you look, yeah. Mm. You know, he was, you know, those, those days, you know, there was uh, this um, uh, Joe Ramirez. There was something, he had something against Michael. I could tell you some stories, you know, that I actually don't, don't want to say publicly, you know, uh, as to how he was getting screwed big time. But here's what happened. The, the worst thing that happened is Michael joined that team and he, and he got top dollar from, from Ron Dennis because uh, Ayrton was going Williams and Michael was going to be number one. And Ron Dennis got uh, Mika Hakkinen from Lotus from nothing, basically. And all of a sudden, he had three drivers, but two high-paid drivers. One had to go. And they did everything they could, you know, to make it uncomfortable for Michael. Because there was Mika Hakkinen sitting there doing nothing. And then when there was a test, they would use him, and they wouldn't even use Michael. In those days, the tests were restricted. And also remember... If you look at the, 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 the rules, in those days, practice, there was a limited amount of laps, 23 laps, the most you could do, counting in and out. And you could not test. Look back at the regulation. It was, was a really a, bad time to come in. That was the worst time. Mm -hmm. He went there at the worst time possible from a rule standpoint. He went with the best team at the worst time because they lost at Honda Power besides. Quite honestly, this thing with uh, uh, Mika being there for free and then him, you know, Ron having to pay and then, and, and then Michael's wife be so demanding, you know, and on the other side, there's a lot of things that, you know, were working against Michael tremendously. The only thing that Michael could have done if he would have had my character, he would have gone to Ron's, you know, at the end of the year because Ron said, I'm going to run Mika you know, for the, the last three, four races, I think. After and, Monza, yeah. And, and I, no, actually he wanted to run it from Monza on. I begged him to have let Michael run Monza, you know, because I, for the obvious reasons. And then that's when Michael had a podium there, for, you know. And, um, you know, Ayrton is not with us, but Ayrton had respect for Michael because um, the, after the race in Manny course, they tested the Monday and Tuesday. And, they were both like within a tenth of one another when Michael finally got his arms around what was going on. And, and he had, a, you know, the Series 7 and, 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 and Ayrton had a Series eight, 8 engine. 
And so a lot of factors here. If Michael, here's what Michael needed to do. Sit down with Ron and said, yeah, because Senna left right after that. And I said, I said, Ron, I want to stay. I want to win a world championship with you. If he would have just said that, but he let his freaking manager, you know, it was a nice guy, you know, talk for him. And that was Michael's fault, you know, in that respect. He got screwed the first year, but he could have he could have toughed it out. So you think there would have been the option to stay for ninety four? Yeah, yeah, if he tried here's, a little bit more. What no, do you no, call no. It? Here, no. Here's uh, Ron. All that Ron said to to Michael. He says, uh, "I cannot promise you that uh, I will renew you. I will pick up the option until November." That's what he said. And Michael felt, "Well, I'm not going to have a sabbatical, so you know, if I'm out of here." Instead of saying, okay, instead of sitting down and saying, you know what, I waited out, I committed to Formula One, I want to stay in Formula One, and I think Ron would have, it would have worked out. It would have worked out, clearly. And so I fault Michael for that. And um, we talked about Do you think he regrets it now? Oh, I think he does. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what of, of all your achievements in your career, what is it? You've won... 109 major races, I think it is, in your career. 111? Maths isn't my strong point, (laughs) Marion. But of those races and of all that success, where do your F1 achievements stack up? Well, obviously, I think I should have devoted more time to Formula One, perhaps. Um, I have no regrets, you know, because uh, I made my own bed and sleep in it and everything else. But... um, that was my ultimate dream, quite honestly. You know, that, that's what got me interested in the sport to begin with. You know, so um, doing some of the things, like we said, uh, you know, just winning here and, you know, and then winning Italy, the same. All those things have a tremendous meaning to me. Not anyone else, but I know what it did for me and um, the satisfaction that I derive from it. Uh, Formula One is still an absolute love for me, no question, will always be. Again, it's um, all I can say that I'm thankful that I gave myself the opportunity, you know, to uh, devote 100% of the time, you know, to Formula One for a period of my career. And, uh, and thank you, thank you, Colin, for uh, giving me what I needed. And again, you know, my career would in any way be anywhere the satisfaction that I'm enjoying today without Formula One. You say you wish you'd committed more time. Do you mean just commit full time earlier than you did? Earlier, yes. I could have, you know, if I would have uh, joined Formula One, say, in 1971. Unfortunately, 72-73 was not very good years for Ferrari. It not, might, have, might not have been just as good, but at the same time I was offered, you know, and because I drove the 72 car, it was not good. That uh, kind of helped make your mind up. Yeah, yeah, actually, I was glad that I didn't do it because I drove it to South Africa. I said, man, this car is not good. It's really, it actually was very yeah. flexible and all that. And uh, But nevertheless, I think, again, things played out ultimately anyway. And uh, looking back, I have no regrets, really, at the same time. Uh, things happen for a reason. And um, I got more than I deserve out of the sport. That's something I know. Any guys you wish you'd driven for in Formula One who you didn't? Maybe Bernie Ecclestone or... I mean, you, 
you did a little bit for, for Frank, but not very much. Oh, yes, yes. Well, I would have, the mistake that I made when I came away from Lotus, I had a choice. I had the clear choice to go with McLaren or Alfa Romeo. Yes. What made you go Alfa Romeo? The Italian. I, I felt <laughs> the year before at uh, Watkins Glen, Giacomelli led the race. He had an issue at the end. I figured it's Alfa's time. And somehow this is one time I went with my heart instead of my brains. And that one I will regret. Try not to dwell on that regret, but I, that one I will regret. Well, my final... I've so enjoyed this chat, Mario. It's been wonderful. But are there any more Andrettis to carry on the speed legacy? Do you think Marco, for example, is, has he got Formula One ambitions? Do you think he can do it? I think it's too late for him. You know, it's... Uh, I think he, uh, his opportunity might have been even when he tested for Honda and Jerez. I felt that... Um, could have cultivated that one a little bit. And uh, it was just, it was certainly on the Honda side, there was no interest. And, and quite honestly, I can't make any excuses. You know, it, um, it had to be him to express himself. You know, nobody had to push me to do anything. So, um, and in all fairness, quite honestly, I must say that, um, you know, I was brought up in a totally different environment. I was brought up in a situation where you can't have it, and I wanted it. And he was brought up in a situation, you can have it if you want it. There's a big difference in that. So it's hard to know where the real desire is. And um, I think uh, Marco, for one, is very happy. Obviously, I don't think he wanted to do anything else. Only he knows how much he really loves to drive. Well, you certainly did. Mario, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, there you have it. The living legend that is Mario Andretti. As cool as ever. And I don't know about you, but I could have listened to that fabulous Andretti accent all day. I took so much from our chat, but perhaps the biggest take-home message was his passion. He still loves racing in all of its forms, and the fire that made him such a formidable competitor is still there, burning as bright as ever. His emotion when talking about former teammate Ronnie Peterson was tangible, and his memory of events from more than 40 years ago was impressively sharp. And there are clearly a few things that still rankle him, not least his son Michael's season with McLaren back in 1993. Thanks for your time, Mario. I absolutely loved our chat. Well, that's about it for this week's very special episode, but there's just enough time to share a bit of feedback about last week's show with Takuma Sato. He was so articulate and, like Mario, so passionate about our sport. Taku was my hero, says Shoya on Twitter. Suzuka 2002 was my first ever live Formula One experience, and to this day, I still remember everyone in the grandstand cheering when our hero drove past us. That moment still gives me goosebumps. Well, I was there too, Shia, and it sticks in the memory as one of the great emotional moments in Japanese Grand Prix history. Thanks for the feedback, and please keep it coming because we love it. Remember to use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid, and you can tweet me at TomClarksonF1. And if you enjoyed the episode with Mario, why not leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app? It really helps others to find and enjoy the show, and that's all we want to do, share our passion for this wonderful sport. 
Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>